This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Thank you so much for joining us. As our culture becomes less familiar with the Bible and more hostile to it, it's no surprise that attacks on Scripture are on the rise. New atheists get in their digs with attacks on the character of God or certain events in the Bible. Less academic skeptics say that the Bible is full of contradictions. And there are even some people out there who question whether or not Jesus Christ was even a real person. How do we respond to these attacks and assert to the world that as the Lord himself confessed to the Father, Father in John 17 as he prayed, your word is truth. We're going to talk about it today with Dr. William Mouse, who is founder and president of biblicaltraining.org. He was the New Testament chair of the English Standard Versions Translation Oversight Committee and serves on the New International Versions Committee for Bible Translation. And today we'll be discussing his book, Why I Trust the Bible, Answers to Real Questions and Doubts People Have About the Bible. So good to have you here, Dr. Mounts. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you. What are your thoughts on the modern day attacks on the trustworthiness of the Bible? I know things kind of ebb and flow throughout the years, the different kinds of attacks the Bible has seen over the years. What's going on today? What are some of the most prolific attacks on the Bible or the subjects on which people are attacking the Bible? Well, you're right. I mean, a lot of these same arguments have come up kind of like once a decade in the new bestseller, but Things are different now. Uh, part of it's because the Bart Ehrman is so effective at writing his books, attacking Scripture, and he's a very, very good debater. So if you watch his debates online, you'll see you'll see how good he is. That's part of it. And then you have the whole issue of social media and uh, personalities that don't know what they're talking about, but are really attacking the Bible. But I think probably the biggest difference is our culture is that we have shifted so far away from our, our Judeo-Christian background that any sense of, I, well, maybe I should trust the Bible, all that's gone. Mm. And so it's really a perfect storm of things. Well, it is. You're right. And and with social media, things can spread more quickly than they used to be able to spread. And that's not always a good thing. But, you know, it, it's interesting on this point. I remember doing an interview years ago and there was some scholar, if you want to call him a scholar, who had decided that maybe Jesus never existed. And I remember one of the points that was offered was not even Bart Ehrman teaches that. What, what about this idea that, that Jesus is not a historical figure? I mean, how in the world can anybody make that claim, given all of the evidence? It, it's really bizarre, isn't it? When I first started getting into that, that's the first chapter in the book, and I said, how could anybody really think this? But, I, you know, who knows motives, but how strange it would be if the most influential person in the history of the world in all spheres never actually existed. <laughs> and, you know, they talk about well, the lack of historical evidence. There's really not a lack of historical evidence. Uh, he's mentioned in Josephus twice. He's in four Roman authors and two Greek authors. He's in the Jewish literature. 
Uh, and you can have internal arguments like you can't explain the spirit of Christianity unless it had a focus point in a real person. So I, it's it's really hard to believe that the Jesus mythicism movement is, is has anything really behind it. Well, right. I guess if you can make a case and people will buy into it that Jesus didn't exist, then you don't have to deal with the harder questions on whether or not he was the son of God or if he rose from the dead. Do you think it's kind of maybe a lazy right. way of trying to stop the discussion before it starts? Well, I, I, I think a lot of people throw up smoke screens, uh, whether it's uh, the issues of canon or contradictions or, you know, whatever. I think a lot of times that it, these are just smoke screens because they don't want to accept the Lordship of Christ. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know people's hearts and you can't, you can't critique them because you don't know them. You have to deal with what they say. But, you know, people will say things like, well, there's not enough written about him. I said, well, he was an unknown person in an insignificant country, in an insignificant area of that country. People don't write historical books about those kinds of people. So, I mean, it's, it's really easy, I think, to deal with that particular argument. Yeah, I agree with you. So when you're talking about the testimony of Jesus, particularly in the Gospels, there are people mm-hmm. who will make critiques about the fact that the Gospels tell the same story, but they tell it differently. And this writer said one, you know, one piece of evidence here and didn't the other guy didn't mention it. Uh, obviously, if you had exact, uh, you know, telling of, of the story of Jesus in each gospel identical, it's, it would seem that that would seem more like evidence of collusion. But how do we approach that issue of the reliability of the gospels? Well, I think that's a good point, first of all, because, you know, in the, in the Quran, all the variant versions were destroyed, and only one version was allowed to continue. And that very fact shows, brings the, the text into question, because it's such an artificial thing. Yeah. But I think we tell stories differently. Everybody tells stories differently. Uh, we have different purposes, uh, different time frames, all kinds of considerations that go into telling our stories. And what you have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and especially in John, is that you have people telling the same stories, especially in the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're telling the same story, but they're telling them from their point of view with their purposes. And, I mean, Luke says that. He said, I, I'm, I, there's a lot of research that I have done, but I'm going to include stuff that shows the historicity of the event. John says, I want this evangelistic. I'm including those stories that will help you see that Jesus is the Christ. And so we just tell stories differently. Yeah, that's and true. It right. doesn't make them contradictory. This makes them different. Well, right. And, and doesn't the audience you're addressing make a difference, too? If you're addressing the oh, yeah. Jews like Matthew as opposed to the Greeks like Mark, you would approach the story differently depending on what the issues were for that particular audience, it would seem. Yeah, absolutely. Matthew includes material, uh, the genealogies. It includes a lot of fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies that actually would be irrelevant to Luke's audience because they didn't know the prophecies. Mm, Uh, Luke includes, for example, way more information on Jesus' ministry to Gentiles, to the outcasts, and especially to women, because that's his audience, and that's what's more important to him. So, I mean, they all tell the same basic story, but they're picking and choosing stories to really get their points across to their particular audience. Right. So on the issue of contradictions in the Gospels, and of course, there's a bigger issue of whether or not the Bible contradicts itself, which is a a bigger subject. But do you see any relevance to that argument that there are contradictions in the Gospel that should make us doubt the trustworthiness of the Bible? Well, it's relevant in that 
some people think that. That doesn't make it true, though. Uh, what, I, what I recommend that people do when they get into a discussion with someone, and the person says, well, I just can't trust the Bible because of all the contradictions, you, you always ask the same question. You say, can you show me one? Because it's really important to know whether the person has a true intellectual problem with two different Gospels telling the same story differently, or whether it's a smokescreen. Yeah. Uh, to date, very few people that I've talked to actually know of where the problem pa- – and there are problem passages, but they don't know where they are. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell them. <laughs> um, but it's – most people, it's just a – it's a it's a smokescreen, and that's why you always start at that point. And then if they have a real problem, then you launch into a – you look at the decks and you find a way to, to harmonize the stories. Well, right. For example, when you talk about the, the Gospel of Matthew recording one angel than you have in the book of John and the book of Luke recording two, that doesn't mean that they're contradicting each other, right? One is mentioning both and one is mentioning only one? You know, someone just asked me that question yesterday. Ah, funny. <laughs> and uh, I mean, because they, they, they want to know an example of a contradiction. But it was interesting. It was a calling. And the person said, well, the Gospel says that one Gospel says there was only one. And I had to correct him. I said, no, the gospel doesn't say there's only one. The gospel says that there was one, mm-hmm. and that one talked. Yeah. The other gospel tells us that there actually was another one. The assumption is they weren't talking in unison. The other one didn't say anything. Right. Uh, so maybe that's why one gospel, gospel writer says there's one. But I use the story that, that I say, um, I took Hayden, my younger son, to the store. If you heard me say that, and then later on you found that I took my older son, Tyler, with us as well, did I, was that a contradiction? Well, mm-hmm. no, because maybe I just want to tell you about taking Hayden because of something that happened to Hayden. Um, so it's, you really have to be careful to understand what the words actually mean. Great point. Dr. William Mounts with us. Why I Trust the Bible is the name of his book. We'll come back to the discussion on Janet Meffer today after this break. Don't go away. Hi, this is Janet Mefford for Preborn. Candace talks about finding out she was pregnant. Thankfully, an ultrasound provided by Preborn allowed her to hear her baby's heartbeat. The sonogram sealed the deal for me. My baby was like this tiny little spectrum of hope. And I saw his heart beating on the screen. And knowing that there's life growing inside, I mean, that sonogram changed my life. I went from just Candace to mom, thank you to everybody that has given these gifts. You guys are giving more than money. You guys are giving love. Would you make a leadership gift and sponsor a machine today? These life-saving machines cost more than most centers can afford. Your tax-deductible gift of $15,000 will place a machine in a needy women's center and save countless lives for years to come. All gifts are tax-deductible. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mafford for Bible League International. Jaime is an itinerant pastor in Ecuador. In Latin America, there, there are violence. Pastors and Christian workers uh, face with attackers, thieves, gangs. So that's the, that's the problem. 
Jaime will travel days by foot, boat, and mule. He's been beaten by warlocks, robbed, and suffered broken bones after falling in the Andes Mountains. What awaits him at the end of each trip? A thriving congregation of hundreds of believers in an area where Christianity is fiercely opposed. When I share Jaime's story, I recall Isaiah 6, 8. Whom shall I send? Who will go? I believe this man is enduring more than some pastors ever will. And like others in the world where Bibles are desperately needed, Jaime is humbly asking us to send God's word. For only $5, you can send a Bible to Latin America and around the world, and a special match will double your gift. Call 800-YES-WORD, 800-YES-WORD, or there's a Bible League banner at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now, here's Janet. Thank you so much for being with us. We are delighted to have with us Dr. William Mounts, founder and president of biblicaltraining.org. He was the New Testament chair of the English Standard Version's Translation Oversight Committee and serves on the New International Version's Committee for Bible Translation. We're discussing his book, Why I Trust the Bible, Answers to Real Questions and Doubts People Have About the Bible. Dr. Mounts, when you're talking about real doubts that people have about the Bible, and you mentioned some of these people who just they're in the smokescreen sort of, uh, you know, ideology where they don't want to really deal with anything textually about the Bible to get an answer. They just kind of don't want to discuss the Bible. What have you seen in terms of real doubts and struggles that people might have had about the Bible and its trustworthiness? Well, I think anyone that's listened in a popular context to Professor Ehrman is going to have questions. Yes. Uh, when he says things like there are 400,000 errors in the Greek manuscripts, there's more errors than there are words that we have copies and copies and copies and copies of manuscripts that have been corrupted. I mean, I think people will hear that kind of presentation, and they could have, um, it's not, I don't believe it's true, but they could have real questions because of that. Right. So that, that is the latest. I mean, contradictions, apparent contradictions, always, has always been an issue with the uh, Da Vinci Code. Issues of canon have come up, uh, but with Professor Ehrman, it's really issues of the Greek manuscripts. Yeah. How do you respond to some of those things that he puts out there that that make a lot of people doubt the veracity of the Bible and the trustworthiness of it? What do you say to some of those claims, especially about errors in the Greek manuscripts? I use the basic example of the of the, the number of 400,000 errors that he'll say is in it. And I'll say the issue is not how many differences there are among the Greek manuscripts. The issues are, are any of them significant? Hmm. For example, 70% of those 400,000 have to do with the verb for SD or S10, where there's an N sound on the end. Uh, they mean exactly the same thing. And some manuscripts have one and the other manuscripts have the other. There's two ways to spell John's name uh, with one N or two Ns, the new in Greek. And so these get countered as part of the 400,000, but they're completely insignificant because they don't affect meaning at all. Right. And so you, you can dismiss a whole lot of that 400,000. And the point is, one of the, this may be the only area where conservatives and liberals agree, that's for the most part, and that is the text critics have done a good job, and 99% of our texts, as we're absolutely confident, is what was originally written. Mm. And you don't get that level of agreement between conservatives and liberals. I don't think at anything else. No, you certainly don't. That's interesting. And what about the standards of ancient historical writing? How do those standards fit into the discussion about the trustworthiness of the Bible and the issue of apparent contradictions? Uh, that's one of the hardest issues, because for us, uh, there's... 23,000 and 24,000 are two different words. 
are two different numbers. Hmm. And they're not so much in the ancient Greek world. They, for example, the, one of the hardest deal, uh, things to deal with is when did the fig tree die? Did it wither the second Jesus said it, or did it wither the next day? Right. Or did they only notice it the next day? I mean, it's, it's, it's a difficult issue. And one of the explanations is that the gospel writers, uh, I'm forget which one it is, but has compressed the two events into one. And we look at that and we go, well, that's, that's just wrong. Hmm. But in ancient historical writing, it wasn't wrong. They compressed stories all the time. And, and we do as well. I, I, I can say, hey, I went to the store and, you know, I bought this and I bought that. Well, it, the fact of the matter is I went to the store, I bought one thing, I left. I went, oh, man, I meant to get another thing. Went back and I bought a second thing. But when I tell the story, I say, well, I went to the store and I bought this. Yeah. See, I've compressed two events into one. And the ancient writers were very comfortable with compression, uh, more so than we are today. But you have to, you have to judge Scripture based on the standards of writing of its day, not our day. That's a great point. That's good to consider. Something else that that people will talk about is when we as Christians point to the text of Scripture as confirming its own trustworthiness. Like, you know, in Luke 24, Jesus uses the Scriptures to affirm that he was the risen Messiah, as in beginning with Moses and all the prophets he interpreted to them, and all the Scriptures, the things concerning himself, which is a strong verse. But then you also have 2 Timothy 3.16, Hebrews 4.12. The trustworthiness of the Bible, the Bible itself says so. But then people will say, well, that's circular reasoning. I mean, any text could claim that it's the Word of God. Just because it claims it doesn't mean that's true. Well, how do you deal with that issue? Well, first of all, I say it's really important that it does claim to be the Word of God, that I think over 500 times the Old Testament prophets say, thus saith the Lord. Yep. If the Bible never claimed to be from the mouth of God, Second Timothy 3.16, then you have to scratch your head a little. True. So I think it's really important that it does affirm a divine origin. And then after that, you just have to look at the nature of, uh, of the all the books. How do you and someone once referred to the Bible as the library, and that actually is a kind of a helpful way to look at it. It's a whole series of books, and they're all tied together. There's the fulfillment of prophecy. There's the the, the promise from Genesis 3.16 that someone is going to crush the head of the serpent, and later on you find it's, it's a Davidic descendant, and in Matthew you find out that Jesus is in line, and then you see Jesus do it on the cross. I mean, that kind of thing doesn't happen by mistake. Right. You also have the the role of archaeology, which is, a, I didn't deal a whole lot with this in the book. I ran out of pages. <laughs> but it was archaeology. It, it's fascinating how phenomenally accurate the Bible is. And not just, you know, this is where this city lived, but on the customs of the day, you know, Abraham is arguing for the price of the land, and the guy that owns the land says, well, I know it's yours, you know, what, what's, what's 40,000, or whatever the number is, among friends? And so Abraham paid it. He look at it and go, well, that's kind of bizarre, and then we know now that's exactly how bartering was done back then. Hmm. So you have this, the incredible, archaeology has never disproven anything in the Bible, but it has proven a lot of the Bible. Yeah. Not only just in terms of, like I say, where the buildings are, or the the cities are, but customs that are reflected in the Bible. 
It's amazing. And as time goes on, yeah, there's really more, yeah, yeah, more and more archaeological evidence is discovered to confirm the Bible. What about the translation issue? This is something obviously you know a lot about because we have <laughs> this argument, you know, the dynamic equivalence translations, which are kind of a sense mm-hmm. for sense versus the formal equivalence translations word for word like the ES, like the NIV and the ESV, both of which you have an association <laughs> with. How do you deal with that issue of, well, wait a minute, you have so many different translations of the Bible. Which one is the right one? This yields a a lot of people saying, you know, that's this is why we have to stick with the authorized version. Where do you stand on all of yeah. that? Well, I, I have a good friend who's actually on the uh, NIV committee, and he says that all main translations will lead you to the cross; none will lead you to heresy. Uh. So the right tra- the right translation is is whatever one you read, hmm. and there's going to be differences, but nothing that's going to affect anything significantly. What I tell people is that all translations are interpretive. There's no such thing as a word-for-word translation. True. They, just, they don't exist. It's, it's impossible to go from one language to another. Uh, even related languages, like English and German, hmm. uh, that without being interpretive. So there is no such thing as word-for-word. Uh, every single verse in the ESV, and the NASB, and the CSB, and the NIV, they're all interpretive. Now, the NIV is, is going to be a little more but they're all interpreted. So I stress that. The main difference between modern translations is that the the ones that we equate to the formal equivalent, like an ESV, are going to be more content being vague. Um, they, they, they really want to do less interpretive, and so they're willing to be vague. So they'll talk about the love of Christ. Well, is that Christ's love for me or, my, or Christ's love, Christ love for me or my love for Christ? Um, NIV, especially the NLT, wants to be a little more helpful at conveying the original meaning. Mm-hmm. And so when you get into a Bible study and, and they're different, the trick is to say, well, how can they both be true? Because both are accurate. Uh, it's just that they're, they have different audiences in mind and different philosophies. So find out where they, how they go together, how they're both trying to explain the same thing. That's a good piece of advice. Do you think there are too many translations on the market? Because it's, it's, it's hard to go to church now. Everybody has a different translation. There used to be just a few that all of us use. Now it's like, you know, every week there's a new version coming out, a new update, this, that. It's hard. It's, it's really hard. And, and, and in terms of the updating, uh, that's a, and people don't like it when translators mess with their favorite verses. But uh, sometimes we find new information that shows that there's a better way to translate it. But English is changing so incredibly fast right now. And not just, not just gender language, but the use of the subjunctive and, and who instead of whom and contractions. And it's just English is just really changing in a hurry right now. And so I have a, a good friend, well, Daryl Bach is a professor in Dallas that he... <laughs> was giving a talk once, and he was reading out of the Net Bible, but he had memorized out of the NASB Bible, and he and he was talking about, this, I guess Gerald said this in public, he said, uh, he started a quote, you know, I'm not fit to, John the Baptist, I'm not fit to step down and to untie his thong. <laughs> and the people were very, very polite. There's about, a, I don't know, a couple hundred pastors in the room. And I went up to Daryl afterwards. Daryl's a very good friend of mine. And I go, Daryl, I really hope you don't untie anyone's thong. And <laughs> no, no. his hands over his eyes and went, did I say that? Said, yeah. But, you know, that's, that's the old, 
NASB, but it's not that old. I mean, that's how fast the language is changing. Mm. So I think the languages that are about to, you know, it's really interesting to look at why the different translations were made. And um, some of them were done out of fear, some of them out of reaction. But it's really hard for a pastor because when I was pastoring, I, I was on the ESV committee at the time, and the church shifted over to the ESV. But I still had to always check. You know, okay, I'm on this passage, I have to read it in the NIV, I have to read it in the King James, uh, because there's if things that are different or be confusing to the people, I have to work that into the sermon. So I think any pastor that doesn't mandate everyone use the same translation is going to have that kind of issue. Oh, absolutely. Well, a really interesting read, Why I Trust the Bible by Dr. William Mounts. So good to talk to you. Thank you, Dr. Mounts, for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. All right. You take care. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. God is using Heart for Lebanon to bring practical assistance and the gospel to the stricken refugee families in Lebanon. For a gift of $116, you can give a child and his family survival essentials for four months and the hope of Jesus Christ, which lasts forever. Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Wow, it is really heartbreaking to see what is going on in Lebanon right now. They are really suffering tremendously over there, and it just seems to be getting worse. You might have seen CNBC reporting that Lebanon suffered a total power outage over the weekend, leaving its population of 6 million people without centrally generated electricity for 24 hours. And this is in a nation that's been facing multiple daily power outages, a banking and economic crisis, food shortages, overwhelmed hospitals, and a spiraling currency relying on volatile black market exchange rates. Also, you know that more than 2 million Muslim culture refugees, mostly from Syria, are still still languishing in those tent camps in Lebanon to escape the violence of the civil war back home. It's Listen to this statistic. It's crazy. 55% of everybody in Lebanon right now is living at or below the poverty line, and a full 75% of the country is now in need of some type of assistance. No wonder the UN has called the situation in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. But here is how great our God is. In the midst of all the hardship and suffering, the response to the gospel in Lebanon right now is tremendous. And our friends at Heart for Lebanon are there on the ground right now in the south in the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing stricken families with life-sustaining supplies and survival essentials. But that is just the door that helps open the way for providing Christian education for children and Bible studies and the proclamation of the gospel and leading to thriving churches filled with brand new believers in these refugee camps. These desperate people are receptive to Heart for Lebanon's family care programs and the development of relationships that give the ministry the opportunity to share the gospel. And so many are coming to Christ. You're going to hear more about that in the coming days. We want to help these families. Most of all, we want them to hear the gospel and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. God is using Heart for Lebanon to make it happen, but they do need our help. So we here at Janet Mefford today are going to be partnering over the next several weeks with Heart for Lebanon. We want to help 52 families of 
four receive the survival essentials that they need because these are families on a waiting list to receive help. Can you imagine? We want to get them off that waiting list. A gift of $116 today helps bring a child and the entire family survival essentials for the next four months and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. You can also help by committing to a gift of $29 per month ongoing. Here's the number to call if you'd like to help. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499. Or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Thank you so much for whatever you can do. I want to talk a little bit about California. It's the state that never lets us down in terms of news. Not good news much of the time. I just don't understand these people in California. God bless you Californians who are loading up your U-Hauls and heading for greener pastures. And I'm going to reiterate again, if you come here to Texas, you better not be blue because we don't like that down here in Texas. (laughs) At any rate, Gavin Newsom, these people in California had a chance to get this guy out of office, and they didn't take it for various reasons. These are true blue believers, and I do mean blue believers, blue state believers. I want to go through some of the things that Gavin Newsom has done ever since he's been emboldened by the voters' decision to keep him in office, head-scratchingly. Gavin Newsom, via Breitbart, signed a host of bills into law on Friday, including AB 1084, which requires gender-neutral retail departments in toy stores so that shoppers will not be encouraged to get some toys for girls and others for boys because that would just be crazy. That'd be crazy. You got to get, you know, little little baby dolls for boys. You got to get those race cars for the girls because they'll love them just as much, except for the fact that most girls will pick up the car and cuddle it and the boys will pick up the doll and use it as a battering ram. But that that that's just, I think, sexist for me to even think that way. Being a mother and observing this behavior, I guess, doesn't have a whole lot of cachet these days. At any rate, let's go on with this. The bill authored by Evan Lowe, the assembly member, assembly member, declares that differences in products that are marketed to girls or boys are unjustified and that it is inappropriate to imply they should be used by one gender instead of another. You know, have we forgotten what the purpose is of blue sides and pink sides, if you want to call it that, in toy stores? It's to make things easier for the shopper. You walk into a toy store and you say, I want to find something for my son. It's easier when you have a boy section. I want to go where they have the trains and the Legos and the race cars and all the boy stuff, the G.I. Joes. And if you're shopping for your little girl, your daughter, your granddaughter, a friend, whatever it happens to be, I want to go where they have girl toys. That's why you have separated sections. It has nothing to do with sexism whatsoever. But they don't care. The bill provides a retail department store that offers child care items or toys for sale shall maintain a gender neutral section or area to be labeled at the discretion of the retailer in which a reasonable selection of the items and toys for kids that it sells should be displayed, regardless of whether they've been traditionally marketed for either girls or for boys. Can you imagine passing a law like this? Welcome to California. Here's another great one that was just passed. Good old Gavin Newsom signed a bill into law on Saturday, phasing out the sale of gas-powered leaf blowers 
lawnmowers, and other small off-road engines by as soon as 2024. This is via the Sacramento Bee. Assembly Bill 1346 directs the California Air Resources Board to phase out the sale of small off-road engines by 2024 or as soon as feasible. The new law also directs the board to identify and make available funding for commercial rebates to go toward the purchase of electrical equipment. This comes a year after Newsom signed an executive order phasing out the sale of gas-powered vehicles by 2035. I still don't believe that's going to happen. But who knows with these people? These people are lunatics. I don't think anything is off the table at this point. And if you combine it with the understanding that the Lord is lifting his hand off our nation and letting us do what we want, which is never good, you wonder... How far will the Lord let us go before it all just spirals out of control? And I'm not talking about the fact that judgment is involved in stopping the sale of gas-powered leaf blowers. I'm not trying to make that point. What I'm trying to say is that you have a certain mentality that is becoming rife where it just doesn't make any sense, does it? It just doesn't make any sense. Look at what's going on with Southwest Airlines. Look at what's going on with these vaccine mandates. And you're sitting there scratching your head and thinking to yourself, why would you force all of these people to get these vaccines against their will when some of them likely have natural immunity to COVID-19? And at the very least, they have the freedom to decide what's injected into their bodies. Not to mention the fact that all during the course of the pandemic, we didn't have one reported super spreader event come out of an airplane. Not that I saw. And I'm pretty thorough in following the news every single day. And I flew a lot. There's no super spreader events coming from airplanes. They're using those HEPA filters to get the wa- to get the air out of the plane and put in new fresh air. And it's not even necessary, except for the fact that people love being tyrants. That's all it is, because there are plenty of Americans I've talked to who have been vaccinated who say, I wanted to be vaccinated, but I'm not going to force somebody else to do it, which also leads to the question, if your vaccination works, Why are you scared of somebody who's not vaccinated? You can't get it because your vaccine works. Oh, you want me to take the vaccine? Well, then I might transmit it to you, but you could also transmit it to me because it's not really a traditional vaccine. What in the world is the point of mandating vaccines and trying to ground all these airplanes? It's it's a very interesting thing that's going on because there's been talk of these pilots refusing to go along with this. And they understand because so many of them are ex-military. There's been fodder on the Internet about how they are very concerned about what's going on. They see the bigger picture and they don't want to go along with it. it. It's bizarre. But this is how people are now. They're just not logical. Washington Examiner. Uh, just a few weeks ago, had reported on the fact that Newsom signed two bills relating to abortion rights. The first one will create new offenses arising from recording or photographing patients or providers within 100 feet of the entrance to a reproductive health services facility. The other will keep patient information confidential for patients who are not the primary policyholder for their health insurance. Uh, Weird. Uh, allowing children to hide sex operations and abortions from parents. That's the headline on that one. Oh, and Newsom limiting free speech. This is also from a few days ago. He signed a bill called SB 742 to limit free speech outside any business or medical facility administering vaccines, including abortion clinics. That's not going to stand. The bill seeks to prevent those wanting a vaccine from being intimidated or harassed while trying to get one. Who's doing that? Nobody. But if you're having Planned Parenthood distribute vaccines, now you can kick the pro-lifers away from the abortion clinics. That's the real intent of this. And I don't think it's going to stand in court. Of course, it is California. So you never really know. 
We'll be back. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. The UN has called what's happening in Lebanon the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. COVID-19, political upheaval, a crumbling economy, and two million refugees, children and their families, living in poverty and despair. But in the middle of it all, God is at work. More Muslim-cultured people than ever before are putting their faith and trust in Jesus. And through your generous support, Heart for Lebanon is being used to bring these hurting people from despair to hope. A single gift of 100 helps bring a child and their family survival essentials and the hope of the gospel, which lasts forever. $348 cares for this family for an entire year. We have a goal to take over 50 families off a waiting list that desperately need our help. So we're hoping you'll be as generous as you can when you call 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a Heart for Lebanon banner at JanetMefford.com. Thank you. Ask yourself, what do you pay for health care? Are you single? Do you pay more than $199 a month? Are you a couple? Do you pay more than $299 a month? Do you have a family? Do you pay more than $399 a month? Yes, you can serve the entire family with health care for only $399 a month with Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals. Sign up at any time of the year. Pick your own doctor and hospital. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. That's 855-565-2561 or libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Every day, someone new goes woke, and some of these movements are surprising, and others are not so surprising. There is an article at the Daily Signal, and it's a very depressing headline to read. It says, Salvation Army imposes racial wokeness within church's ranks. Just kind of put your head on your hand. Now the Salvation Army has gone woke. Let me tell you a little bit about what is going on. In materials prepared for its more than 1.5 million members, the Salvation Army uses terms that echo both radical anti-racism jargon and the divisive teachings of critical race theory, which separates people into the oppressors and the oppressed. And many of this trusted charitable organization's donors and other supporters aren't even aware of what's going on. Here's what's interesting about this. The Salvation Army historically has been apolitical. And now it's beginning to promote political and racial ideologies under the banner of its New York-based International Social Justice Commission since the protests and riots over George Floyd's death began over a year ago. The International Social Justice Commission, which, by the way, I'm going to interrupt myself here. If you're apolitical and you've created something called the International Social Justice Commission, just setting up something of that sort is pretty obvious, makes it pretty obvious that you've gone political. What are you doing? Well, they work on issues involving human rights and justice, from human human trafficking, asylum seekers, but more recently, the commission, 
which was launched back in 2007, is unhealthily mixing admirable human rights work with politically charged advocacy based on progressive politics. This is a church founded in London in 1865, and they have an army structure. They have officers and soldiers collectively called Salvationists, and they're inspired to perform good deeds on account of their Christian faith. So earlier this year, Brian Peddle, general and international leader of the Salvation Army, announced an initiative that is called Let's Talk About Racism, a curriculum with devotionals, videos, and other materials dedicated to helping Salvationists conduct courageous conversations about racism. Wouldn't you go to the Word of God if you wanted to have a church discussion about racism? Why do you always have to bring in outside materials? That should be your first red flag. Paddle says in a video announcement that the resource helps Salvationists to overcome the damage racism has inflicted upon the world and, yes, the Salvation Army. But then the video he made doesn't back up or explain the bold accusation that racism has damaged the Salvation Army at any significant level. It's bizarre. It's just weird. Then it goes into this background on the Salvation Army and its history and all the good deeds it's done and goes back and says that Let's Talk About Racism initiative, which was rolled out this summer, is described in five slides that outline the larger Christian church's alleged complicity in racism and provides action plans to combat racism through what the initiative calls an anti-racist lens. One Salvation Army captain told the author that the leadership of the organization disseminated this curriculum through emails, videos, and other presentations through its four territorial commanders and to field officers who serve poor communities across the U.S. And in some respects, the materials are indistinguishable from the anti-racist programs of any multinational corporation or the expounding of critical race theory at a major university. Let's talk about racism accuses white salvationists of being unable or unwilling to acknowledge their racism. Where are we hearing this? Oh yeah, everywhere. Just as Robin D'Angelo argues in her book, White Fragility, that whites are defensive about racism or race-related issues in general. The Salvation Army Initiative attacks colorblindness on race. (laughs) Because you certainly wouldn't want to look at your fellow man in the same way you look at your own skin-colored fellow man. You wouldn't want to look at people across the racial spectrum equally, because that would be wrong. Do you see how we're going backwards with this whole racial injustice or racial justice scenario? Now, Now you've got certain pockets, schools and so forth, universities that have talked about having, you know, a black only area or black only dorm or, or floor of a dorm. And, and people are starting to say, well, wait a minute, aren't we against segregation? Didn't we have people who fought valiantly during the 60s in order to stop segregation because that is racist and to say you have to go to that particular water fountain because of the color of your skin and the guy with the other color of skin gets to go to that water fountain? That's ridiculous. It's completely racist. And people fought for this and they passed federal legislation to stop it. And now with today's woke, they're bringing back segregation. And now they're bringing back the idea that being, being colorblind is a problem. No, being, being colorblind is what we should be doing because we understand God created one race, the human race. And people look different from different parts of the world and there are different cultures and there are different ethnicities. Nothing wrong with that. God is very creative and he's made a lot of different people a lot of different ways. But so what? We're all created in his image. We should be colorblind. We shouldn't be ever emphasizing somebody's race as a way to ostracize people. But that's exactly what these people are doing.
That's exactly what these people are doing. It's like I played that uh, clip of Russell Moore just a few days ago, saying at a, a conference a couple of years ago on racial reconciliation, you know what's really dangerous is not the overt racism. It's the secret racism. <laughs> okay, but you're presuming that there is secret racism. You can never defend yourself, though, if it's secret and if it's systemic, then you can never leave it behind. You just have to be in a permanent position of bowing down before the woke to tell you what you're allowed to do and what kind of penance you have to pay. Forget it. Just forget it. And for the Salvation Army to be involved in this, it's just so depressing. I mean, it's, it's depressing for anybody to be involved in it. I often wonder when you see these particular denominations going woke, it always makes me wonder, where is the lineup of Christians who know their Bibles putting a stop to this? Is it a problem, generally speaking, with church bureaucracy, where you have these kinds of activist types going into denominational jobs? Because that does happen. I'm not saying everybody's like that, but I have seen that over the years. You have a lot of activists straight out of seminary or straight out of academia who want to work to change the structure of the denomination and turn it in a more wonderful direction. But it always seems to involve leftism to some degree. And this went on. Guys, if you're just learning all of this woke stuff at this stage in the game, you've got to understand that you you go all the way back to the social gospel in the late 1800s and you follow that thread all the way through some of the mainline denominations and you see how the mainline denominations were absolutely wrecked by this garbage. This isn't new. It just gets a new face every 20 years or so. And then they they re-put it out and, and they try to act as if it's just brand new and aren't we brilliant and and anybody who's a little bit older will look at it and say this again this old error again the bible says there's nothing new under the sun it's like there are no new heresies you had the arians back at the time of athanasius the early church they had to fight back this idea that jesus was the first being that god ever created and athanasius said that's not true And he was right. And thankfully, the early church listened to his argument and they upheld orthodoxy when it came to the nature of Christ. But then you have the Jehovah's Witnesses and they're Arians. So you don't have anything new. You just have new names for the old heresy. There's nothing new under the sun. And they can call it whatever they want. But we still keep returning to things like Marxism because it worked so well during the first 100 years of its existence. It ruined How many economies left over 140 million people dead, according to Paul Kangor, Soviet expert. So what are we supposed to do? I really think it's important for us as disciples of Jesus Christ to hold the line. Hold the line in our churches and our denominations. Just look at what's happening in the Southern Baptist Convention at the moment. Now you have all these people on the executive committee. People are resigning. And now the legal counsel has resigned because they're talking about waiving attorney-client privilege in order to deal with a sexual abuse issue. It's a mess. It is a mess. And you wonder who could have stood firm 20 years ago or whatever the date would have been and said, we're not doing this. We're not going in the direction of wokeness because everything that happened under the Greer presidency led up to all of this. It is the case that sexual abuse in the church should be addressed. But what's happened is you've gotten a lot of activists who will not be satisfied. They've got pitchforks and torches and they want this and they want that and they want this and and they're all or nothing and they scream and yell on Twitter. And then all the people who are working in the elite realms of some of these denominations just 
do what they're told because they're scared of bad publicity. Look, we have to do things according to the word of God, regardless of what's happening in our churches and denominations. And it is important for us to hold the line and to have, you know, just like in politics, you want to have good people serving in office because that vacuum is created. Otherwise, you have vacuums that will not stay vacuums. They'll just be filled with bad people. That's why Christians need to be, I think, in every realm of society, but especially we have to watch what is going on in the backyards of our churches. We really, really need to be there and fight for the truth of God's word to be brought to bear on everything. Thank you for joining us on Janet Mefford today. We really appreciate you tuning in. Hope you'll do so next time, and we'll see you then.